Hey everyone, it's John and Chris here. Uh, just a quick note before we start the episode proper. This episode was recorded about a month ago, and uh, and so the context for the ways in which we have our conversation and the movies we picked and the recommendations all sort of reflect a pre-Black Lives Matter demonstrations because those hadn't happened yet. But we wanted to throw out some recommendations and as well as uh, for, for films to watch, as well as places to donate and... Uh, before I throw it over to Chris, uh, just wanted to talk briefly about sort of like I think for I think both of us I can say without without hesitation we both support uh, Black Lives Matter. We um, both are against police brutality. Like these these things aren't in question. But I think that for us uh, running a fairly small podcast by two white guys, there are some questions around like what does this potentially mean for us and what does it mean for us to uh put that support in uh, both in terms of like the kinds of how we talk about movies the movies we talk about that kind of thing and uh while i don't have anything in the immediate to uh announce as far as that stuff goes it is pretty much like anytime i think about the stuff i do now it is definitely with an eye towards how can i how can I learn? How can I think better? How can I do things that are, um, that are more, I guess, uh, supportive of, you know, people of color and that kind of stuff. So while, um, that's could sound like a lot of nothing, but I'm hoping that, uh, over the next few months that that starts to re- reflect somehow in the work that we do here. Just to kind of tag on to what you said, um, obviously, uh, Black Lives Matter, that as a movement and just everything that's been going on as far as overt racism, systemic racism, police brutality, this is going on far before we started this podcast. Um, And just in light of what happened to George Floyd and what's going on right now, uh, the, the movement that's gathering so much steam and and trying to take place, we just wanted to take a moment to reflect that we are aware of it, we are recognizing it. And I think and hope, like a lot of people, what we're trying to do right now is just to educate ourselves to be better, Um, educate to see how we're to blame for a lot of what is happening, how we take advantage of a lot of what's happening, um, and that it's not enough to not be racist. Uh, You, you know, actively being an anti-racist is something that is sorely needed. So, you know, uh, John, I, I think you, you definitely spoke for both of us. We're ta- we're both taking a lot of time right now over the last two weeks uh, just to kind of continue to educate ourselves. How can we not be the problem? How can we help to be the solution? Uh, how can we influence the people in our immediate vicinity and our community? How can we help via donation, via protest, via education, um, whatever we can do to kind of help push this to a place that it needs to be. So um, in light of that and in light of the fact that you're going to be hearing us talk about two documentaries that really don't have anything to do with any of that, I just wanted to bring uh, your attention to a couple of things that are readily available uh, that I would highly recommend and and we may even take up in a future episode. Um, these are really uh, – wrenching, impactful um, movies and books that you can start to check out now to, again, maybe you're already familiar with it, maybe you just need to reacquaint yourself, but maybe you need to confront some things that you may, you know, not realize you have, whether it's a bias or an area of privilege that you don't really consider. Um, Now's the time to educate yourself and get going on that. So in that, uh, with with that in mind, um, this is really readily available. um, 13th, uh, which is uh, from director Ava um, DuVernay. Uh, this is a Netflix documentary that's about the U.S. prison system and how, uh, I'm just going to take right from the description, how the country's history of racial inequality drives the high rate of incarceration in America. Netflix has released this free for everyone to watch. Um, it's available on YouTube. I really recommend it. It's an incredible um, documentary. Ava DuVernay, uh, most people may know her. Uh, she directed the film Selma. She also directed the adaptation of uh, A Wrinkle in, in Time. But uh, over the last couple of years, she's really been focusing on documentaries um, that really strike a very hard nerve. Um, so 13th is an incredibly powerful thing that anyone who has access to YouTube should be able to watch right now. Highly recommend it. 
also from her and still on Netflix at this time is, um, uh, and I apologize if my voice is a little cracking. <laughs> it's um, When They See Us, which is about the Central Park Five case. Um, it, it, again, these are important events that uh, unfortunately are not anomalies. They they have shaped so much of our history. So uh, check those out. If you've got HBO, another one to really check out, um, Four Little Girls uh, by Spike Lee, which is about the bombing in 1963 in Birmingham, Alabama, that killed four young girls. Uh, just to kind of give you some perspective of how long this has been going on. And I mean, even 1963 is nowhere near the start of what we have kind of fomented um, in this country. So please go ahead uh, and check those out if, if you if you can. If reading is more your thing, um, a lot of great uh, people online have been recommending things that anyone can read to kind of get themselves better acquainted with the struggle that has been going on, is going on. And, you know, as much as it pains me to say, it will continue to go on. Um, you know, I, I don't think there's an easy fix here. So Anything we can do to help, um, to listen, to learn, to grow, and to not be part of the problem and actively part of the solution is helpful. So just a couple books. And, and John, I know you're you're intimately familiar with the first one I want to recommend, which is I'm Still, I'm Still Here uh, by Austin Channing Brown. Um, uh, also, uh, How uh, to Be an Anti-Racist. We, we, we talked before, you know, it's important to not only not be racist, but to be an anti-racist by um, Abram X. Kendi. Uh, the book I'm reading right now is So You Want to Talk About Race. I'm going to mangle this name so I can, keeping with all the other episodes where I screw up the names of things. Um, Ijuama Ulo, uh, I'm reading that right now, and it's a, it's, it's a beautiful uh, but very harsh uh, and, and uh, uh, in, impactful uh, book that really strikes at a lot of things that um, I think we all need to hear and wrestle with. So those are just a couple things. Um, there are so many things that we can do, um, you know, whether it's educating ourselves, whether it's donating, whether it's being out there, um, directly protesting, aiding those who are protesting, um, just kind of putting forward the reality that you want to see and actively standing by it. it it's hard um, and it might be a struggle, but it's something that is so, so essential and so necessary right now. So uh, John, I, I know you, you have a couple things that you wanted to talk about just as far as some other things that folks can do and, and to kind of wrap up before we jump into the episode proper. So I'll let you f wrap it up. In addition to the uh, documentaries, this is not so much documentary related, but I know that Criterion Channel, for example, has dropped uh, the paywall for a bunch of a bunch of the movies that feature uh, black creatives and uh, filmmakers. Uh, as part of in a similar move to what Netflix is doing. And so if you, that's actually been a lot of what I've been watching the last couple of weeks is mostly just trying to silently just watch these movies and get a better sense of, uh, um, you know, of that side of filmmaking that uh, more than most things that I'm ignorant about, I'm especially ignorant about here. So it occurs to me uh, as I'm saying this, that there are in fact so many of uh, so many Black Lives Matters uh, related organizations, a lot of uh, bail funds. Uh, some of them have re been receiving so many donations that they actually have uh, are actually redirecting people to go elsewhere. And so instead of, uh, Instead of specifically recommending a couple here uh, on the uh, in the podcast itself, I think what I'll instead do is ask for people to. I mean, this stuff is on the internet everywhere. I would ask every, anyone listening to find an organization doing raising money for this kind of work and to donate as they see fit. And for Chris and myself, since we you know we exist in physical places, um, I think that what I'll probably do is. And when the show, when the episode goes up, will each of us link to a local organization that we would like to see money donated to if people see fit to uh, contribute? But I mean, the overall theme is do what you can. I'd say that uh, th those would be my sort of final recommendations before uh, before we wrap up and head to the episode.
podcast where myself, John, and my friend Chris talk about a pair of movies around a theme of our choosing. Chris, how are you this afternoon? Doing okay. It is beautiful here in New York, John. How are you doing? I'm in a basement in Canada, so I'm just going to say it's probably good. Uh, <laughs> I think we're all locked in our own emotional uh, basement in Canada. <laughs> Well, As, and sometimes uh, physical too, emotional yeah. and physical basements. <laughs> yeah, it is still, um, we are still in the grips of uh, COVID-19 and at least here in the United States, um, a lot of states have started to reopen as of uh, May 1st and then uh, more specifically this past Friday, the 15th, New York uh, is doing it by region. Uh, I live very close to New York City, so uh, we're not uh, going to be opening anytime soon, but uh Again, right now, just taking the opportunity to uh, get more movies in and just try to soothe the soul a bit. So uh, I'm looking forward to getting into this month's topic. Absolutely. And for us, it's just we reopened on Thursday, but I have nowhere to go to and I don't trust the public. So I'm staying in my house uh, as long as uh, I'm allowed to. So that should be our new tagline. Cinema Duel, we don't trust the public. The topic for our episode today is documentaries. And I have, sometimes we talk about our histories with these uh, things and why we chose them. Um, This, uh, I originally had a movie in mind that uh, I had wanted to talk about from almost the beginning of when we started this, I it was early on my list of movies I wanted to talk about. And so documentaries was, uh, as a subject, was a framework that I could come up with to talk about this movie. Um, and that movie was King of Kong, a movie that I had uh, loved dearly many years ago. Um, and upon, and I had originally selected it as my choice, but then after watching it for about 30 minutes in, I was like, oh, I hate everything in this. <laughs> um, and so I decided to pivot, but we're already here. We're doing documentaries. Chris, do you have any particular feelings on the genre as a whole? or um, A little bit. So uh, it, it's interesting that uh, you mentioned that of the films that we're going to talk about, the reality is neither of them are our first picks. Yours for the reason you just described um, so you can consider somewhere in the universe, there's an alternate version of this episode where we are actually talking about uh, King of Kong and Gates of Heaven, which was going to be my pick, the debut film by Errol Morris, um, except damn you, uh, in- International Lines, it's streaming here on the Criterion channel in the U.S., but not in Canada. So I, too, had to change my um my uh, selection. So we're going to be talking about two different films. Uh, as far as my experience with documentaries, um, they're not my go-to uh, film genre. I'll, I'll be very candid. Um, the majority of documentaries that I have seen, um, beyond some you know very big classic ones that we can certainly talk about, um, but it, when I was thinking about what I typically watch, it actually drew me to the question of really how do people generally think of documentaries? Most of the documentaries that I watch and and the one that we'll talk about today from my selection is a kind of example are um, subjects about particular people or particular films or particular genres of things. So they're much more informative, like this, these are the facts, this is the thing. And here's a snapshot of a, of a particular thing, whether it be the making of a film or the career of an artist, whether it be a musical artist, an actor, um, so on and so forth. Um, it tends to be much more kind of talking head factoid stuff. Uh, and I don't have nearly as much experience when it comes to documentaries that try to do something different, that either um, try to use uh, different visual dynamics or, or uh, oral dynamics. Uh, y- your, your selection is a huge example of a documentary um, doing something very different in its intent. Um, so it was interesting to jump into this and, and start to kind of look at different types of documentaries, documentaries that have a very specific point of view and voice and documentaries that very specifically don't have a point of view uh, or try not to have a point of view or, or try not to have a voice, uh, try to do different things. So uh, I'm a novice when it comes to this stuff and I'm looking forward after, you know, diving into it a little bit, probably searching out some more. Absolutely. Well, then why don't we get started with our first film for the episode? 
Yeah, so our first film of the episode is 1967's Don't Look Back by D.A. Pennebaker. In the annals of uh, music documentaries, uh, this is probably one of the most classic examples, um, but there's a lot more to it than that. So what is Don't Look Back for those people that don't know? And this is Don't Look Back, D-O-N-T. We don't use an apostrophe here. Uh, that's just how it's always been. This is um, D.A. Pennebaker's kind of cinema verite look at Bob Dylan, specifically Bob Dylan in uh, the mid-60s on a tour of London. Right before he kind of um, started to go right into his electric phase. So if you're familiar with Bob Dylan, um, I'm a huge fan of Bob Dylan. I love his music. Uh, this is right around the time that Bring It All Back Home came out, which was half electric and half acoustic. The tour that he was doing in London at the time was purely acoustic. It was a one-man band, him, his harmonica, his guitar, playing out to um, huge crowds. It ends with a triumphant kind of, I think it was a two-night stint at the Royal Album. Hall. So that's what it is. There are a lot of documentaries now that do something similar. Uh, go on Netflix and you can see a hundred documentaries about, uh, most recently Taylor Swift had one. Uh, and it's, it's a look at her life in the last year, but what don't look back does very differently is it's not a talking head. It's not a factoid documentary. It's not a, here's something that I want to show you. And, and here's what I think about it. It is very much a unobtrusive look at, as possible of Bob Dylan and what Bob Dylan was doing at that time, how he was perceived by the public at that time and what his reception to that perception by the public was. Um, it's certainly, although at the time it was the, the film w w was kind of um, broached by his manager, Albert Grossman went to Penn and Baker and said, Hey, can you film us? You know, we want to do something. The, the guess I would think would be, you know, as some promotional fluff and, Pennebacker, to his credit, doesn't do that. He paints a very kind of uncolored portrait of Dylan. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't seem to be particularly favorable or unfavorable to him. It just kind of documents this guy and what's going on. And uh, it's really interesting whether or not you're a Dylan fan. You know, there is that one aspect with the music. But the thing that really drew me to the film, especially this is probably my third time watching it. I hadn't watched it in probably at least seven, ten years. Um, watching it now as an older person, um, I'm less enamored with Dylan's genius, except for when it is clearly evident. There's a, an amazing scene where um, he's in a room with Donovan and there's a there's a whole episode that occurs right before this of, around a glass thrown out a hotel room and Dylan just going like berserk with anxiety and rage over what's happening. Um, and then there's this weird episode where Donovan plays, you know, like a really nice kind of sweet and innocent kind of folk song and asks Dylan to play a song. And he specifically asks him to play um, It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. And Dylan does. And it is it's galvanizing in how uh, this kid, this gangly kind of erudite, pretentious kid, when he is in his element and puts, you know, voice to these words uh, that he wrote, uh, it becomes magic. Uh, but then just right afterwards, <laughs> he becomes a dick again. Uh, so it's, it's kind of fascinating in that it, this is the first time I've watched and realized this is a film that's not asking me to make a judgment. It's just, it's, or it's not giving me its own judgment. It's just asking me to look at kind of a warts and all performer, um, and really see that despite genius, uh, we're all human and we're all kind of liable to fall to our own devices at fail, at, you know, to our own devices at times, you know, all that. Plus you get the iconic opening, which is, um, Dylan with the flashcards for subterranean homesick blues, which is, it's just a mesmerizing piece of video that, you know, predates the rock videos that we would come to see right 20 years later on MTV. So a lot to look at. Um, I think a lot to talk about. So John, I want to ask you two things first, just kind of what your, what were your thoughts on Dylan coming into this, you know, just as a performer, as an artist at all. And then what does the film do to you to, to, to kind of 
change or question your perception of what you thought you knew about Dylan? And do you think that's what the doc is trying to do? I basically knew nothing about Dylan uh, and probably still don't. Uh, I, which is not to be a positive or negative thing. I just, I obviously knew who he was. I had some vague sense of people occasionally referencing a big change positive or negative when he went electric so i know that means something to someone uh or to a lot of people and so when i saw that he was uh that scene where he goes and is looking at all the electric guitars i was like that feels significant um in a way that without context i'm just like "Ah, that feels like that's probably important um i would say that the subterranean homesick blues video that starts the movie um that's probably what I sort of latched onto the most at the beginning because there was a political sketch show in Canada during the nineties and uh, early two thousands called the Royal Canadian air farce, uh, that would on regular occasions spoof that video. They like, they, they constantly like, and then it wasn't even like most, like I could see an SNL doing that like one time, but they would do it many times, uh, with whatever, you know, joke they were doing so when i when i saw the the, the, him you know doing the cards i was like oh that's where that comes from um but that to say that like coming into this movie with no particular opinions of him as an artist or as a performer beforehand i mean the first thing that strikes me is just how young he looks um he i think he's in his like I i don't know if he was like 24 there's the fan pandemonium that sort of comes up here and there of, you know, everyone in the UK is just super excited to meet him. Um, and the press are throwing questions at him and there's just this fervor about it. And I was like, wow, 24, like that guy, like looking at myself and going, Hmm, I'm 34 and not really, uh, like it just, it just, it, it blew me away how young he was, I guess. Um, as for his persona, I kind of liked him. I thought he was kind of cool. <laughs> like he seemed like kind of a fun guy. And the the parts where, I mean, I the part the parts that I like the most where was when he's hanging out with his artist friends and they're just goofing off, shooting the shit, playing music, like just sort of without pretension of, you know, not needing to be on, so to speak. Um, the stuff where he's quote unquote, you know, harassing the press or the press are harassing him or he's, there's fans doing stuff. I'm not as interested in that because I don't have a relationship to that sort of, uh, that side of him. But when he's just sort of like playing guitar, like the, the baby blue song, for example, that was wonderful. Well, that's, that's one of the things that made me kind of perk up at watching the documentary this time, particularly around how he's, portrayed and I think at different ages I saw him as different types and and I do still like him even when he's kind of pretentious and and arrogant and freaks out there's something there the the passage that really affected me the most this time around is there's a real long really uncomfortable kind of confrontation between him and a young English reporter and the English reporter is is just trying to get him to you know, have a proper interview. And, and Dylan is biting back going like, why should I know you? Like, why should I care about you? And he's putting the reporter on the defensive. And as that scene starts, there's a large part of me that's like, you know, he's, he's basically doing this so that he doesn't have to answer a question. He's actually being very defensive by putting the reporter on the defensive. And the argument keeps going back and forth. And he's getting this reporter to talk about, like, what do you have to contribute? Why is it worth knowing you? And then you start to feel a little bit bad for the reporter. And all of a sudden, the nature of it changes because it really boils down to... Well, the reporter says something along the lines of, well, you know, you're this important person. I, I th- you know, the words you say are important. And Dylan just kind of shoots back and goes, why are they important? They're my words. I'm just saying them. Like, you, you, you can't answer your questions around why it's worth to know you in like two seconds. I'm not giving you enough time. You're expecting the same thing out of me just because my job is a musician. I just sing the words that I sing. You guys are the ones putting the import to it. 
And it becomes this kind of wonderful, it, and it's at that moment where Dylan, like they finally have this quick connection and Dylan just goes, you know what? D ask me your questions. We we've hit upon this common ground all of a sudden. Um, and in classic, <laughs> classic narrative structure, right at that moment when they're about to ask the questions, he has to leave. <laughs> he has to go perform and they don't have the time, but it's a, it's a beautiful sequence just from a, just from a narrative perspective, it's tense, it's uncomfortable. Then all of a sudden there's breakthrough, there's release, and then something happens and we have to switch scenes and, and go somewhere else. Um, and it's amazing that a documentary that is really supposed to be at its heart, just um, an unobtrusive look into the life of an artist that Pennebaker through, I'm sure culling and culling and editing is able to find these wonderful moments and string them together time and time again, like he does with the Donovan um, Dylan performances in the room after the party and stuff like that. I don't know Bob Dylan. I don't know if he's sincere or not, but if you assume that he's sort of sincere in the question that he's asking or like even his, in his deflections, they almost like that feels not that I would approve of it, but it feels like relatable as something like a shitty 20 year old would do. Um, if you remove it from the, the perspective of, you know, big, important, legendary figure of rock and roll bob dylan um and instead you think of it as i don't know he's just a kid like a, an adult kid sure but like the ways that he sort of pushes back on those interview questions like yeah he's he's there to do an interview for press but if he's you know if he's so going so far as to say, like disown the meanings of his own songs like he's just i write i don't believe anything i say i just i don't remember the exact words he uses but he, he you hinted at it that he essentially like for the importance that people place on his stuff. He's like, well, that's you guys doing that. I don't care. I could relate to that as being something that I could have done, you know, when I was younger. Yeah, it's it's kind of dickish, but if he's saying that everyone's putting so much importance on his words in the songs, th then this almost ends up feeling the same where uh, people go and put a lot of importance on the things he does in the documentary, even though he's just kind of fucking around. Um, the second time I watched this, I was watching it with a commentary with uh, a couple of people who are on. I think it was one of the artists who was touring with Dylan at the time. And I think the director of the film. Yeah. It was DA Pennebaker and uh, Bob Newworth, who was the road manager in, yeah. the, in the movie. And for them to talk about scenes that mean a lot to them, like that, that must have been a memorable experience. And I don't want to take away from that, but the way that they talk about specific nuances and memories and moments, while it's it just one of those things where I don't connect with the I guess the importance of it in a way that I think Dylan would actually possibly agree with at least if you follow how he tends to act in those interviews yeah. um, where they would say oh here's this moment where he looked out the window and I'm like okay I, it's 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 cool and that's and for other people for whom that means a lot great but for me I go eh, you know it's 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 compelling without having to like I guess, put more onto it. Does that make sense? It does. Um, and, and it kind of brings me around to where I want to ultimately get with the film. So let's take, it's almost impossible to do because he's the point of the whole thing. Let's take Dylan out of it for a second. Um, just the style of documentary. Um, this is the earliest for me, at least of documentaries that I've seen where it is very much, you know, we've for better or for worse, especially lately in the last like 20 years, we've grown up in the world of the celebrity documentarian, right? Michael Moore, uh, the guy whose name I'm never going to remember, but the super size me guy, right? Even, uh, stuff like, like that, where the, the, the person making the documentary kind of injects themselves into the documentary and it's a about a particular thing that they want to pursue. Um, I really like the idea here of just, we're going to show you something. This is where I, um, I want to talk about this a lot more when we talk about your pick. We're going to present something to you. Now, in this, in this instance, the thing we're going to present to you is um, an up-and-coming you know, pop star doing a tour of London. Um, and we're going to show you certain things. And based on what we show you, you're going to make your own judgment as to what this is about, what it means, um, what the art means to you, what, what the art means to you when you watch it, you know, as I did. And I think the mid nineties and then, uh, in the two thousands, when it came out on Blu-ray for the first time, not on criterion, I think is when I saw it again. Uh, and now recently again, and, and how, 
it's so interesting how a, a, a film's a film's hold on you will change when it's not telling you what to feel. Um, and that's the biggest thing I took away from this, regardless of what it's about. Uh, the thing that I want to chase more with, with Penna Baker in, in general is just, it's interesting to just use a documentary as really what it means. It's a document of a very specific point in time. Um, it doesn't provide commentary. It doesn't provide perspective. It provides a point of view, that point of view being the, the camera. And obviously, since he chooses what ultimately, via editing and via what shot, is ultimately in the final product, you, you can argue that's a point of view. But I, I don't feel that really heavily here. And it's kind of refreshing. I think I was re-watching something with Dylan as he was reflecting on it. And he even said like his approach to having the crew there and doing the documentary in the first place seemed to similarly be along the lines of everything else. I don't particularly care. or I didn't care at the time. And that, I think that's the key to this movie's success because you're right. The, 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 the camera, like them being there shooting and editing and putting the whole thing together definitely requires decisions and opinions and points of view. But for, this to work as being as compelling as it is uh the, the subject of the documentary uh dylan has to basically act as if it's not happening and i and i think that for me where i i'd be curious you know going out of this episode to like to listen to some dylan to listen to some joan Baez, uh you know that would be that's something that i'm like curious enough to ch- take a look at i think that <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, what? No, you anticipated what my last question was going to be, which was just generally, after all is said and done, John, now are you more interested in checking out some Bob Dylan? Yeah, for sure. So it could be fun. Seems like a, seems like a cool cat. Um, I think that what I... In, and obviously Dylan is key to this thing working, but I think what I ultimately appreciate the most about this going out of, or after having watched it a couple of times is sort of the, even if people aren't paying attention to you, you have to be there. You have to know what to do. You, you have to have the sound person who's also in the room as well. There's like all the technical aspects of putting something like this together when there's not necessarily an established bl- blueprint for it. That ends up being the stuff that I think I appreciate the most about it i'm right there i'm i'm right there with you just in terms of the amount it's fascinating to think about what it took to make something look as unobserved as it actually is um and i really do admire in a you know where so many other documentaries are relying on personal interviews and things of that nature which is perfectly fine the way that this film kind of gets over that is to record interviews that Dylan's having with other people and seeing the different tones that he takes. Uh, it's it's a it's a it's a movie that definitely gets its due in the annals of documentary and rock and roll history, and uh, I'm inclined to agree with the majority of folks that uh, that it's 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 worth its uh, weight in the uh, in the talk that it's given. Right, John, that does it for me. What do you have? Uh, my choice for this episode is a 2012 documentary by the name of Leviathan. I've mentioned before on this podcast that sort of the one a big factor in the uh, or a bigger interest in movies is the now defunct website screen.com. And one of the contributors to that website, a guy named Eric Pope, uh, he had it was either in a it's either in a review or a best of list. He ta- he praised uh, this movie and something about the way that he described the movie at the time str- seemed very interesting to me. And because there are several films named Leviathan and anytime you Google Leviathan, it is a hard search result for many years. I never actually saw it for a long time. And then finally... It showed up on Criterion fairly recently, and so I was finally able to watch it many years later. And it left a huge impression on me. And when it came time to make our choices for the episode, uh, and King of Kong didn't pan out, uh, Leviathan was bumped up from my recommendation to my actual pick for the episode. So pretty pretty simple. Uh, Chris, I think when I looked at your letterbox, I think I saw that you had reviewed the movie, uh, or you had seen the movie uh, prior, is that right? 
I have seen the movie prior, yeah. I, I came to it through um, one of my favorite film podcasts, is one called Film Spotting, that I've been listening to for many, many years. Um, Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson. Josh Larson, one of my favorite um, critics, whether listening to him or reading him, uh, this was one of his favorite films. Um, so when I had the opportunity to see it, Back, I think for me it was like 2014 or something. It was when it was first available digitally. I was able to rent it. And uh, that experience stayed with me and did not change when I rewatched it again for our episode. Yeah, so this probably uh, a good chance as any to, to talk about what the movie is. Um, the film is directed by uh, Lucien Castang Taylor and Verena Paravel. Apologies for any mispronunciations there. Um, this is, I believe that they originally had set out to make a movie, a more conventional documentary about uh, fishing industries. And so that would involve going to fishing ports, spending time on the boat, spending time, you know, on in the, in the factories and sort of trying to get a bigger picture. Um, but in the course of uh, filming uh, the, the, the portions that the time they spent on the fishing boats ended up being more compelling. And so the, the shift in the documentary was made to focus exclusively on their time on the fishing boats. Um, and so what you get, the actual content of the movie is what, uh, is basically a series of footage that is shot from a bunch of GoPro cameras that are attached all around the ship. And in some cases attached to the crew themselves. Um, and it is a almost there's no narration um and there's no there's hardly any like any of the tiny bits of spoken word you hear are almost indistinguishable so you can't hear it it is essentially a movie with uh and, and a lot of it's shot at night too so the 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 visuals aren't always are kind of grimy kind of grungy uh and it's and you're just hearing the, the the sounds of, you know, the boat, the waves, the fish. Um, this is basically a this is a movie that is only only really works to engage your audio visual senses. Um, and I think when I was hearing you talk about the unobtrusiveness of the Bob Dylan doc, something that struck me about this, and I think you might have been thinking it too, is this is not a movie that really gives you any context about what to think about it a hundred percent fair <laughs> yeah. yeah it is a movie that is incredibly punishing to watch and is very compelling i would say that because like this this is really a, a movie about trying to recapture the sort of i guess the experience of being on a fishing boat and using you know, the tech using the various techniques they have to sort of get you into that sort of brutal and visceral lifestyle of, you know, just hacking up fish all day. Um, this is, um, if, if you could definitely, there's so many different routes you could go around think about when, when you think about what this movie is about for some people, you could watch this movie and assume that this is a movie about, why you shouldn't eat fish you could just say no this is a movie about how tough and rugged the the fishermen are and that i think that's that works too knowing that there's a lot of interpretations chris is there anything that you came like what was your takeaway with like how did it strike you uh in your in any of your viewings yeah, so I I read a bunch of reviews for it, and I read a bunch of different interpretations. One, um, a, a couple that were really kind of environmental in nature. Um, one or two that were, to your point about, you know, what it's like to really work these things and the punishing um, toll that it takes on people. But ultimately, I don't think there is a point at least as far as what they want you to think. I think um, it's telling that <clears throat> at least part of, the, part of the, the filmmakers here are part of the sensory ethnography lab at Harvard University where they are really kind of looking to see what they can do from a visual, um, oral experience. And I think that's what this movie is more than anything else. It is using the context of deep sea fishing. Um, I think it's off the coast of Massachusetts and, uh, but it's using that as a way to just explore visually and, um, and orally just these 
almost at times nightmarish sensations. I mean, this is the closest thing to just kind of like a like a Lynchian dreamscape that I've seen in forever. And I think that was my takeaway the first time I saw the film, too. Um, is there a point to it? Be- for me, beyond just the representation of what's going on, I don't think there's a larger story here, uh, which I think is perfectly fine. Uh, and I think that's the, the, the parallel that kind of draws back to what Pennebaker does with Don't Look Back is I'm going to just show you this thing. I'm not going to comment on it. I'm not going to give you a way in. In fact, this movie, more than almost any other movie, doesn't really give you a way in. Um, and we're just going to present it to you. We're going to present these images and these short narrative arcs that are interesting in their own right. Um, and when tallied together, just paint this abstraction that leaves these impressions that you'll have to wrestle with. Um, particularly the, the thing that I think really nails this home is, you know, as much as people want it to be about, you know, the lives of the fishermen, there's these two arcs of just, uh, again, brilliant narration just by what it shows you. And instead of what it tells you, there's a lopped off fish head that's just sitting <laughs> in like the, the floor next to this porthole where all the dead fish parts are supposed to flow out. And for like three minutes, it comes super close to falling out and it doesn't. And it leaves you going, man, is that, is that fish head going to fall out or not? And you suddenly become invested in whether or not this severed fish head is going to fall out of a pothole or not, the the, uh, porthole or not. There's another sequence where there is a um, bird that I, I don't know if it's, if it's leg is hurt or it's wing is hurt. It's just, it's on the deck of the ship and it's trying to crawl over a crate and for about two or three minutes, you're just vested in watching this bird. This bird is going to get over the crate or not. And then ultimately, it gets flung out the porthole as well. Um, I don't know if there, is a, if there is a cultural or sociological point to these pieces and how they contradict the more human elements of watching guys uh, shuck clams and watching guys clean out uh, fish or rip the wings off of stingrays or um, one guy uh, just after you see the filth and the blood and the guts that hang all over the ship. There's like a five minute scene of a guy just taking a shower and trying to get that filth off. I don't know that the juxtapositions between those two things are meant to convey a particular point as much as they are just to immerse you as much as possible in the sight and sounds of this particular experience. Well, and even towards the end, like there's, there's, there's ebbs and flows to the sort of visual and sonic violence that you're seeing. And towards the end, there's even sequences where you're just watching someone watch TV completely blank for extended periods of time, just to get a sense of like, the the hard swing like like get a fuller picture i guess of of life on the boat um and then there's of course the like the 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 documentary is called uh leviathan and at the beginning of the movie it opens up with a passage from job 41 which is where the leviathan shows up in the bible it's not a especially well used uh uh image in the bible but that's where it shows up and of course there's the you know the moby dick stuff that is is only kind of like mentioned at the peripheral and then of course there's the fact that there's a mass at one point you can kind of hear someone listening to mastodon in the background uh i believe this (laughs) i believe they're listening to i am ahab from the album leviathan so there's just this like it's barely there and i'm and I'm wondering if that's like a, a remnant of sort of the previous iteration of that movie, but it does seem to have, um, it does seem to just want to put you there. It's, 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 and let you sort of, um, make decisions for yourselves. I thought if you, you were talking about the, the fish head and that being a particular moment that you found arresting, there is a moment, I don't remember where, but they're reeling in one of their bigger lines and you see the, and the big machinery uh, starting to reel in one of these big giant cables and you see how slow it's going. And then the camera pans over to see how much of this thing is left. And even the like two minutes that you're watching, it feels like an eternity. And then you look over and see how much is left to go. And it's like, Oh, if I was there, then I would 
like for very essential and life preserving reasons need to make sure that this goes smoothly but also i would just need to stand there for hours like just while this like big giant huge machinery sort of slowly works to its purpose yeah you know i i think that more than anything else um certainly more than the opening kind of um biblical reference which which i i I actually didn't didn't really take for anything more than well we want to have just something that speaks to the deep and speaks to the depth so this is what we found I, i attach no real significance to it but if if anything moments like that moments that just show the kind of inexorable nature of this life and this career and this business that to me is what really speaks to the title Leviathan. I mean, beyond just the obvious oceanic references, there's just this, this sense of something huge and looming, something ever, everlasting, whether it's how massive it is for this chain to come up, how long it takes to kind of get from this point to the next point. The takes themselves are often very long and, and almost... Um, in the way that they use those GoPro cameras where you're uncertain as to an anchor point for what's up and what's down. Uh, the first beautiful shot we see of birds is immediately kind of uh, refracted because the birds are kind of upside down and they're reflected from the water and you can't tell where your reference point is. Um, all of those things which don't allow you to kind of have an anchor point speak to something massive, speak to something large. And I and and for me, that's how the title has always kind of tied into this experience. It's you're immersed so deeply, um, you see how massive this thing is that you can't really get a hold of it in its totality. That's how large this and encompassing this process is. And and that for me is that's the Leviathan of the film for me. Um, well yeah, I think the the, the bird shot that you're talking about anytime this movie goes and shows you footage of birds or the, the 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 bird you know the flocks of birds sort of off the side of the boat that was so disorienting i was i was completely caught off guard i'm like where am i in relation to or where are they and where am i in relation to everything it, um or the the shot where um I think what they must have done is they must have had some kind of something hanging off the top. They must have had a GoPro attached to something that was hanging off of like a pole at the front because there's this shot that's amazing of the front of the boat. So sort of going up and down through the water and you're just sort of watching the way like the the boat sort of and the waves crashing up and down on each other for a few seconds. And it's just again it's it's if if you're thinking about how the movie gets made thinking about well how did they achieve that shot like what are they i don't know i i agree with you that it's it it doesn't really give you anything to to hold on to um and i think that for some this could be a potentially i mean if anything we've talked about before hasn't already it should be stated that like this is not going to be a movie for everyone i don't think um this is, I think I joked to you before that this is essentially like a harsh noise uh, fishing documentary, essentially is what it is. Like if, if you were to, if someone was to have, if someone was to put this on a projector and then on a stage and then call it a their harsh noise set, I would just accept that as that's like, oh, I just watched a concert play of like just experimental weird sounds and visuals that are completely for for the most part there, there's ebbs and flows but like can be awfully disorienting um and i for the most part think that's really cool i'm not always in the mood for it definitely uh if you're looking if you go back to our previous episode on you know comfort movies or before that when we were talking about how wonderful faces places and warm it felt like this is sort of the opposite of all of those threads um but there's but but it, it's it's harrowing and nightmarish without specifically say tying into things like oh i don't know pandemics or anything it's a like this it doesn't feel whereas king of kong now feels timely in a gross way that i don't want to talk about it this is like well this is terrifying but it's not 
triggering like weird feelings that I have right now about the, my life outside of the movie. So that's where I think I can still come away with, well, if you want to, you want something wild, then go for it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm in a hundred percent agreement with you. Although I'm, I, I can safely say I probably won't watch this film again unless I have to. Um, that's not to say it's not a bad film. It is a very striking and arresting and, and unnerving film to watch. Um, it's not one that I see myself going back to, but the anxiety and the unease that it puts in me has nothing to do to your point with like current environments and current culture and current anxieties. It's just an, I think again, people tend to throw the term Lynchian. It's now become its own kind of phrase to just, describe that kind of tone people throw that around quite liberally uh and in some cases erroneously i i think it's very fitting here uh when, when you mentioned this being like a harsh noise backdrop i immediately was like oh this is what's playing behind like a prurient show if prurient were to put yes. on a live show right this is this is what's yeah. playing in the background um i can see someone just taking like an audio rip of this and putting in some polyrhythms and some weird drums and that's your that's your harsh noise experiment that you're going to release on Bandcamp. Uh, it's it's it it is a it is a genuinely immersive, striking film. And the thing that I really like the most about it is it is it's so weird to call this is again just like Don't Look Back. It's a it's a documentary, but it's a documentary in that it is a document of something, and what it documents it does in such a visually striking way that it opens it up to all these different interpretations and it doesn't necessarily invite or want to invite a particular or singular point of view as to what it's trying to tell you. And I think that more than anything else makes this a huge success as a film. Yeah. I think that the way that it is, the way that this film is so sledgehammery and not subtle about the audio and visual things that it's going for and the things that it's trying to do somehow come out of uh, something that is as unobtrusive, I think, as Don't Look Back. That, to me, is kind of amazing that, like, it doesn't feel... I mean, I, yes, the decision to not do narration is a decision, but, like, it, it does feel like, well, there's not a lot of, like, cheating here um, as far as setting up things that in order to make a more compelling movie, it just feels like, um, it, 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 again, if we were to talk about King of Kong, something that would come up is the idea of cheating and how that movie cheats a lot, um, as far as being a documentary. Um, but this movie, I guess technically it's possible, but it doesn't feel necessary. It doesn't feel like if like on its own, it just feels entirely engrossing. Agreed. To close out our episode, we'll do our regular film recommendation segment. Chris, why don't you take us off for today? Sure. I've got three, one of which I'm going to do really, really quick. And that is, again, since we mentioned it in the beginning, in an alternate universe, I would have been talking about Gates of Heaven. I definitely recommend seeing that. Errol Morris is an amazing filmmaker. Uh, you probably know him from things like The Thin Blue Line, uh, The Known Unknown, which is his his great um, interview slash documentary with Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, he did the, A Brief History of Time about Stephen Hawking. Um, this was his debut. Th th this was the film that since he got made forced Werner Herzog to eat his own shoe. Uh, so if for nothing else, see Gates of Heaven. And then if you have the Criterion channel, you can also watch um, the quick doc documentary about Werner Herzog eating his own shoe because of it. The other two that I'm going to talk about really quick, um, the first one is a little bit more um, of... When we talk about documentary, we're talking about a bunch of talking heads talking about a particular subject. Uh, it's not particularly deep and it's not particularly uh, exploratory in the way that a really great documentary is. But man, if you love 80s horror like I love 80s horror, then look no further for the film In Search of Darkness. This is a British documentary, although it is about the pretty much the uh, American 80s horror experience. Um, I kind of came across it on Twitter. Um, there was a Kickstarter for a, fi a film called In Search of Tomorrow, which is an, uh, a look at 80s sci-fi and fantasy. And they said, hey, from the makers of In Search of Darkness, 
And the thing that struck me was it is a four and a half hour documentary on eighties horror films. And it goes year by year talking about some of, uh, I don't want to say the best horror films because it is very selective in what it chooses to talk about. But as far as talking heads, uh, you have Stuart Gordon, you have John Carpenter talking a lot about their films of the 80s. So if you want to hear about Reanimator and From Beyond and Dolls, which is a great obscure Stuart Gordon movie that I've loved my whole life. If you want to hear about what John Carpenter thinks about all those Halloween sequels and you want to hear him talk about The Fog and They Live, um, they are they are prevalent. Uh, it talks a lot about the Romero films, um, it talk, uh, really Day of the Dead. It talks about the Hellraiser films, all the Friday the 13th movies for better or for worse. Um, it's, it's just basically a bunch of geeks talking and geeking out about the movies that they love, but it gives a lot of love to a genre that kind of gets shit upon sometimes, uh, especially eighties horror with how campy it is and how kind of misogynistic it can be. Um, it points to a lot of bright spots in there. It's a little selective in its movies. Um, I wish it had gone through some more obscure routes, but we had to make room to talk about Friday the 13th, one, two, three, four, five. I think we go all the way up to eight. Uh, probably not all of those needed to be discussed, but, uh, really worthwhile if slightly kind of thin and airy. Hey, let's just talk about a bunch of movies that we love, um, like that, but it's, it's got a cool pedigree of, uh, commentators and stuff. So definitely check that out. The other one that I really wanted to talk about, I wanted to keep the Bob Dylan documentary train running, um, and go in a slightly different direction. So, um, talking about great filmmakers, uh, Martin Scorsese has done numerous documentaries, including numerous documentaries about, um, Bob Dylan. So, um, you can certainly look, if you're looking for something that's a little bit more tried and true, um, you can look for no direction home, which is a fantastic kind of overview of the early part of Dylan's career. But the one that I want to talk about and the one that's readily available right now on Netflix is rolling thunder review, a Bob Dylan story. And this came out last year, and it's about one of the most incredible kind of musical periods of Dylan's career. It's about the 1975 Rolling Thunder Review concert tour. So, John, you were talking about you want to hear more Bob Dylan, you want to hear more Joan Baez in particular. This was a kind of review concert tour that they did together, as as well as uh, Roger McGuinn from The Birds, uh, Hurricane Carter, uh, Allen Ginsberg, the poet, was there. Um, so this is a document of that time period. But the interesting thing that Scorsese does with this is he not only kind of documents it, he also does some weird biographical kind of commentary interview pieces with both nonfiction and fictional characters. So Bob Dylan is in it and there's a couple um, there's a couple kind of interviewee type questions with Dylan, um, but he's setting up a fictitious version of the tour. Uh, and then you have um, there's an interview with Jack Tanner, uh, who was a prevalent uh, politician and had his own documentary series called Tanner 88, except that that was a fictional <laughs> miniseries. And it you know, the, the, the character was Michael Murphy, but here he's playing Jack Tanner. So Scorsese weaves these kind of fictional and non-fictional elements together into the mythology of what many claim, and, and I'm a huge believer in, is, is one of the best errors of Dylan's um, career. It's a fantastic, beautifully shot, beautifully composed, beautifully edited um, documentary. If you only want to watch just to hear some incredible musical performances, it's there. But if you really want to see an interesting way of how you can, to what we were talking about earlier, cheat in a documentary in a way that is authentic and in the spirit of what's trying to be achieved, this does that in spades. And it's a, it's a lovely, lovely film. What do you have? Well, that actually, the selection of that um, got me to, uh, inspired a third pick of my own. I originally had two I was going to present. So in the spirit of in, your pick In Search of Darkness and just how long and nerdy and in-depth this stuff goes, uh, my first pick for the night is a documentary called The Lesser Lights of Heaven, um, by the band uh, Zayo. This is a three-hour documentary about one of my personal favorite metalcore bands uh, ever, but admittedly, 
a band that you would not imagine making a three-hour documentary. I mean, Metallica has some kind of monster, and that is not three hours long. <laughs> but the within the metal underground metalcore scene um, that Zayo came up in, bef- when the internet was in its nascency and there was just starting to be message boards, the 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 lineup turnover, the rumors about them constantly breaking up and the crazy shit that they would get up to became such it actually ended up hurting their career because they were seen as not really a stable band. They're not really a stable lineup or entity that could do shows. And so that kind of actually hurt their career. And so at some point their manager uh, decided to basically put together a a combination of talking head documentary and live footage where they basically went through every single one of the 20 people that, were in that band or however many people it was like they got every single person and they went through every like their entire history cleared up every rumor i imagine there's like a like maybe a couple few hundred people that would be interested in to know all of the tiny minutia that gets covered in it but they go through everything and at the time when that came out that was a hundred percent aimed at me i could never watch it again but that but in hearing you talk about like the, that horror documentary that's what that brings out in myself um so if you know if you happen to like zeo and wanna and don't want to just look look through some wikipedia stuff this is uh i had fun watching it um at least the one time uh the other two uh the next one i'm going to do is harlan county usa a 1976 documentary by barbara koppel uh she took her uh she basically took a camera to Harlan County in southeast Kentucky in 19, uh, so, or during the uh, during one of the big miners' strikes, and I'm probably not going to do a great job at describing it, but essentially, uh, she hangs out with the people who are going on the miners' strike, and the way in which she's able to basically pull at your heartstrings uh, through their struggle. She stays with them for I think for like more than a year, I think. Um, and the this 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 the people that she follows and the the stories that they weave it is incredibly compelling and emotional and um i wouldn't necessarily say it does the best job of being like of trying to present you know sort of like a both sides angle at it it doesn't ignore some of the weird complicated stuff that happens on the union side specifically that one of the people who's competing to be the union president him and his family get slaughtered (laughs) seemingly for hire by the guy who is president so that gets weird it's an incredibly engrossing watch and apparent and uh one of the reasons i want to pick this one as my recommendation is because she cites don't look back as a big influence on her the intimacy of being embedded with uh bob dylan it's sort of translated into her, um, into her sort of getting to know the the miners and their families and how everyone's working on this in this collective struggle. Um, I will say that in people talking about that documentary, it ends up being uh, it ends up being much more. It's not the it's not unobtrusive in the way that uh, Don't Look Back is because everyone talks about how because that crew was there, there's probably a lot less violence than there would have been otherwise. Which in this case is a good thing because I'm okay with uh, them having an influence on it if it means less people dying. But uh, it is it's it's just a fantastic uh, it's a fantastic movie. And uh, if you're a fan of Panopticon's album Kentucky, uh, he uh, Austin Line heavily samples dialogue from this movie. So um, the last one I want to re- uh, recommend is one I watched just this last week. It's 2016's Camera Person. It is a documentary by Kirsten Johnson, and it basically functions as a memoir of her life as a cinematographer. Um, she has worked on a ton of documentaries, and basically she went through all of the footage she had collected that from all the projects she worked on where that didn't make it into the final pro- uh, cut, and then sort of put together a collage of all of that sort of discarded unused footage um and what it tends to look like is you know if you're if you're shooting a documentary you have the camera going all the time and that will so you'll get stuff on camera that is like i'm going to the place where i'm shooting that's not meant to be 
in the thing itself, but you'll have all these little weird bits where people are talking to you. Like as a camera person, you're generally don't want to be acknowledged. Um, if you're trying to just be a fly on the wall. Um, and so she takes all that, all that footage that would normally get cut out of all those documentaries where people acknowledge her existence. And that ends up being the, like, it ends up making the movie about her is by stringing together all this stuff where she is talking to people, um, about these other projects and sort of re reframes what those, all those other movies are about to be about. This is the parts where this isn't going to be in the movie. It's just going to be us talking about whatever. And then she, you know, turns herself into the subject of the documentary, which is pretty cool. It's it. There's, I wouldn't say that there's anything that it's about, but I kind of like it. And both of those are on the Criterion channel currently, correct? Yes. Harlan County, USA and camera person are both on Criterion. So definitely worth watching. Excellent. I will put them on my queue now. Excellent. Well, Chris, I think that's going to do it for us tonight. I uh, appreciate as always the chance to get to hang out and uh, chat with you about movies and life and uh, pretty much anything else that we can think of. Um, for anyone that's listening, we hope you're doing all right, still doing all the things that you need to to take care of yourselves. Uh, you can, uh, yeah, just tune into the next episode, listen to watch some more movies, think of us. You know, that's that's all I ask of you in this podcast. I think you don't <laughs> think of us. Yeah, think of us while you yeah. watch movies. Stay safe, watch movies. Um, certainly, none of us are particularly uh, kind of pimping anything at the moment. Um, but if you want to drop a line and say, hey, you should talk about this or here's a good idea for a topic, uh, we're always open to suggestions. So I think both of our Twitter handles are readily available. CMVoss042 uh, is mine. John? Uh, mine is just my last name, Petcow, P-E-T-K-A-U. All right. That'll do it. Thanks so much, John. I appreciate you always having me on. Look forward to doing this next time. Absolutely. Take care. Bye. <laughs>